PLG has huge appeal. The question is, though, where are the drop-off points? And where you find those drop-off points in, let's say, the adoption rate or the expansion rate of clients, that's really where you want to start to look at how do we insert people into this equation? Because even the stickiest products at times require a personal touch. A lot of product-led founders are so good at building wonderful products that they don't think about the sales element of it, or whatever product you're building to engage your audience, make sure that there is a commercial pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Hello, Thrivecasters. Good morning, good evening to all the people who are listening to Thrivecast. We have a very interesting topic today, and to do justice to the topic, we have David Jeff, who works from Israel, and he is safe at this moment. And if you hear some background noises, there's some stuff going on in Israel that you guys all know about. But let's touch upon the topic a little bit. Our topic today is the evolution of SDR or sales development representative role in the product-led era. David has been in this industry for quite some time. He's recently started Whistle along with uh, his good friend, and I believe uh, a good brother as well, Johan. But David has had an interesting career before this as well. He was a sales rep. He ran sales team for various companies. I think he also started his career from the finance background as well. And maybe David can touch upon that a little bit. In this journey, when I looked up his LinkedIn, and David and I have been talking a tad bit in the last month or so as well, he's been helping many startups in the world who came from an SLG background. And now they're trying to add PLG. And very recently, companies, early stage startups and mid-scale startups who are PLG first companies and then figuring out how to get to SLG. So our today's topic will touch upon evolution of that particular space alongside with the evolution of the SDRO itself. David, welcome. Welcome to Typecast. Thank you, Guru. Looking forward to talking. So David, you and Yona, you started Whistle, I believe, in 2018 or 2019. Could you tell a little bit about what inspired you guys to build something like this and solve this problem? meaty problem across the board. We'd both worked in tech startups for a while. Yona specifically in SDR roles. Myself, I founded a tech company when I was in Australia. And then when I moved to Israel, I, I sold it and I got in earlier two other tech companies that we scaled and sold. And all of those companies, I was involved in building out the SDR and sales function and scaling and building uh, global sales teams. I didn't plan on starting a business like this. I wanted to start my own tech startup again, but there was a lot of demand for sales development. And I had some VCs that had seen what I had done at some of those other companies reach out to me and ask me to help their portfolio. And what started as a consulting gig branched out into a, listen, I can give you all the best advice I want, but let me just do this for you, a gig. And we grew really fast. We officially started around 2019, but I didn't really take the business seriously until early 2020. Once we had our first like three clients, that's when I realized like, oh, it's a business and not like a side project. And that's when we started to try and grow together into something bigger. And since then, we've grown pretty fast. We're coming close to about 100 people. We've worked with about 150 companies. Most of them are tech from early stage to much larger enterprise companies and it's just been an amazing uh, journey over the last few years. Congratulations. Of course, you are in the startup nation and you're running this business as a startup itself. David, maybe for the listeners, could you tell them a little bit about what is Whistle and what do you offer? Yeah, sure. Whistle primarily 
handles sales development for tech companies looking to grow, many of which are targeting the US, Europe, the UK, or Australia. That would be the main areas that our clients are usually focusing on growth. Some of those companies are your typical kind of enterprise SaaS companies, but many include product-led growth companies that are trying to insert a sales motion into it. Over and above what we do on the sales and sales development side, we also do a lot of RevOps work. We're a HubSpot Platinum partner, so we do a lot of RevOps and enablement build-outs there. And some content work uh, on the marketing side with some SEO consultation as well, which is something that's relatively new for us. It's just we noticed that all of our clients have the same need, so we build solutions to their problems. So that's really what we focus on. And we're lucky enough to work in every time zone now and with uh, our teams are spread across about six countries, I think, at the moment. Yeah, growing. That's great. Maybe just for like a basic introduction, let's start with some of the very core questions that more listeners might have. Could you define what is an SDR and what's the importance of this particular role in a typical SaaS company? I'm assuming that you'll probably touch upon the sales-led companies and where traditionally SDRs have been used. Maybe let's start from there. Yeah, sure. So an SDR is a sales development representative. Some companies would call them a BDR or a business development representative. They typically sit in between marketing and sales in terms of functionality. They are almost like a bridge between the two because oftentimes the marketing motion doesn't necessarily drive people into sales meetings. And the sales motion doesn't usually feed back to marketing what's going on. So the interesting thing about SDR, at least for me, is that it's the function of the business that speaks to more prospective customers than anyone else. And when you realize that, you see it as a much more strategically important function in a company as opposed to just like a glue between marketing and sales. So marketing teams never speak to potential customers. They don't really speak to anybody. Right? They're trying to analyze based on how people respond or click or where they're going. The sales team only speak to a select few prospects who are actually interested in what the company is doing, whereas SDRs speak to the whole market. So where SDRs are being used really effectively over and above driving sales qualified leads and driving pipeline is also for listening to the market and reporting back on that feedback. Being able to share with marketing teams, when we go and we present this message on this channel to this person, these are the responses that we get. So the role primarily has the function of driving the most amount of sales over the shortest amount of time, primarily through conversation over phone, email, and LinkedIn. But as a secondary role, it's a feedback mechanism for the marketing team, and it's a way of informing the sales team ahead of their meeting as to what level of interest that prospect has and key talking points they might want to focus on when they have that sales meeting. So that's typically how SDRs are used and, and where they sit. So if that was the case and sales-led companies were going pretty strong with that, wherein marketing teams would, I'm trying to reduce it in my head, what you said, marketing teams will build content or they do any campaigns as such, and they are trying to acquire these users coming to this website. People who are visiting the website, let's say for that matter, we call them as an audience or a visitor. They consume this content, they attend these events, and from that, the marketing team is 
creating a small list of people who are potentially interested in the product's value proposition. I think what you're saying is SDS come in and take that list and go a little beyond. They do some outreach calls to them, either email, messages, whatever that might be. They reach out to them, they talk to them, and they're trying to book demos and get more context to the sales team. And that's how they're bridging the gap between marketing and sales. Is that a good enough reduction? Yeah, I think definitely on the inbound motion, that's a pretty fair reduction, which is really that they are taking inbound leads or contacts that the marketing team are in communication with and converting them into leads. On the outbound motion, it's slightly different because the lists that the SDRs create ultimately are already pre-qualified. So these are lists of people that the business would love to work with but we need their consent and their interest. And that's really what the SDRs are being used to do. I also think that there's a very important point about the difference between a contact and a lead, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when it comes to marketing. Marketing tends to assume that anyone who's looking in your general direction is a lead. That's not true. If you want contacts, you can just buy lists. It's very cheap. It's way cheaper than ads, right? A lead, I would say, somebody who has some sort of level of intent or awareness about what your business does. And so... If you look at SDR as a marketing play, which is what I feel it leans more towards, even the fact that your SDR team is out there reaching out and talking to people and leaving some impression about your business with them, even though that's not necessarily tied directly to revenue or to the core role, it has a massive impact on other marketing functions because although we like to picture it as linear, it's never linear. People, when you ask them, how did you hear about us, often will tell you different stories that might actually be how they first heard about you or it might be the sixth or seventh time that they heard about you, but that's the time mm-hmm. that inspired them to action. So yeah, that, that's how I think about it. Okay, I think that's very well put. I think you said it very nice. SDRs are both inbound and outbound. Now let's say we have established what's the job description of an SDR. Could you maybe describe a little bit about what's changing in the market and why does, if a company is now starting to do PLG and not just SLG, what is that having an effect on the SDR's role? So I think there's, it's no secret there's been huge changes in especially the SaaS space in the last year. In many ways, it was prompted by some big tech companies laying off, slow down in IPOs, some VC firms, pretty well-known ones, deciding to tell their portfolio to cut costs. And I think with that came a shift in how companies are mandated to grow. So for years, it's been the growth at all costs mentality. And this year in particular has really, and I'm assuming next year too, has really brought in this focus on somewhat profitable growth, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're calling it camels instead of unicorns. And as such, there's been a big question from investors to one of the biggest cost centers of a company, which is the sales team. And how do we reduce that function? And marketing expense, right? How do we reduce that function? So many clients that we work with have massively cut their marketing budgets and are trying to get the most out of that sales team to reduce their customer acquisition costs, which is one of the metrics they're measured on. To your point about PLG, I think why it's so attractive to investors and to founders is because it promises a relatively low customer acquisition cost And potentially, if your product is good enough and sticky enough, it can also be relatively cheap to promote. 
So if you build something wonderful that people just love using and can sign up either in a free trial or a freemium type of model and from there share it and make it go viral, you don't actually have to do that much marketing to get it out there. And there's a lot of examples, a lot of social media apps are like that. A lot of companies like Canva are another great example where you can get a lot of functionality for free and it's such a wonderful replacement, let's say, to PowerPoint that people jump on the bandwagon. So I think PLG has huge appeal. The question is, though, where are the drop-off points? And where you find those drop-off points in, let's say, the adoption rate or the expansion rate of clients, that's really where you want to start to look at how do we insert people into this equation because even the stickiest product at times require a personal touch. And unless you're in that top 0.1% of companies, let's say like Apple, where people are willing to spend tens of thousands of dollars without talking to a person, or Tesla, okay, where they're willing to buy a car online with a credit card, most companies need to bridge that trust gap. And the best way to bridge the trust gap is with a personal reach out and conversation. And that's, I think, the area where SDRs and salespeople are slotting into in this new PLG-driven motion that's becoming much more popular over the last, I would say, two years. So let me revisit what you just said. You're saying that as PLG is becoming popular for various business reasons, reduced CAC, easy to acquire customers, or whatever that might be, the product is the one which is driving the distribution which means that the users are coming in and using your product from a bottom-up standpoint. They sign up themselves, they try it, and they are most likely even trying to do a self-serve monetization as well. So they are doing an in-app checkouts and all of that. What you're saying is there is a need for a role in this product-led motion, which touches upon not just the product-led distribution, but focuses on the drop-offs associated to this customer journey, and if that journey is not happening well enough, these are the people who can pick up the calls and can talk to the customers. And typically, this was not done before in the SLG world, right? In the SLG world, what you're saying is the SDRs are a bridge between the marketing and sales. Here, there's a new role, and for a moment, let's give it a name. We'll call it as a sales assist role or product-led sales assist role which sits between the product and the sales. Exactly. And is that the evolution that you see for the SDRs, which are, if they're coming in from the sales-led world, they become a bridge between marketing and sales. But if the product company itself is product-led from the very outset, in that case, this role, even though it might have an SDR-like effect, they are not using the marketing-qualified lists. They are using the product-qualified list to make a call. Is that how we should think about it? Exactly. So I would say within the ecosystem of the PLG company, that is the motion, is to take product qualified leads and to drive them through the sales funnel or to expand them or to really get the highest lifetime value out of that customer. The other move, which is outside of the ecosystem, is to try and still do outbound, but to hunt for a typical enterprise company that is just not being captured in that whole, let's say, free or freemium model yeah, and to bring point. them either in or to sign them onto an enterprise plan. That's not usually the starting point, though. Most PLG companies will start by just going bottom up 
and then at some point mature the product to the level that they think, hey, this is an enterprise level that we can go and sell six, seven, eight-figure contracts on. And that's where they'll use SDRs in the kind of classic role. So I think what you're saying is there might be two roles which are needed, meaning depends upon if the SaaS company wants to do PLG and SLG, meaning PLG first and then layer on SLG. In that case, the first roles that they might hire is the product-led sales assist, okay, which are sitting between the product and the sales. But if they want to go sell to higher or larger customers with a higher TCV, in that case, they also might want to create a new team, right? And that's the typical SDR, which where we, we might even call them as now a sales-led but product assist. So is that what you're saying? There's a need for two new teams now if you want to do the cyber growth. Absolutely, depending on the product that you have, but I see that trend emerge all the time where PLG companies reach a certain size just through the standard ecosystem and then either driven by investors or the founders or whoever dictates the strategy, they start to now say, look, we're loving these high volume, low amount deals, but now Mm -hmm. we want to start getting some big $100,000, million dollar contracts and the product's mature enough to the level to do it. And now we need like an expansion team. And that's where they start to go down the route of a SDR and enterprise sales motion that's very similar to what you have with SaaS, but it's also powered by a lot of very valuable intel from the product and more importantly from its users. Understood. So let's peel the layers of these onions. There are maybe two onions here. One is the product-led sales assist role, which sits between product and sales. And another is the traditional SDR, which is they are sales-led, but assisting on the product growth, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that for all the listeners, most of these SDRs might be reporting into the sales team or they, they have quotas around the number of demos that they get and all of that. But maybe, David, in your experience, if you could define the new role that we talk about, which is the product-led sales assist, that sits between product and sales. Could you describe what their role is? Who are they reporting to? Their whole job description has now changed. They can't use the marketing list. Now they have to use the product list. So how do they see the roles to be changing? So I think they could come in at different points in the business journey. And I've seen different examples. I've seen companies that have adoption challenges where they're either getting people to sign up for a trial and they're not getting engagement or a freemium, they're not getting engagement, or they're seeing drop-offs when it comes to collecting payments and actually signing up to the full product, or they are seeing underutilization of licenses. So I always talk about it as like a concierge. If I had to think of a job description, I would think of a hotel concierge. Mm-hmm. When you go to a hotel and the concierge comes up to you, you don't realize that they're actually in a sales role. You think that their job is just to make your stay at the hotel as comfortable as possible. And that's what they do. But at the same time, once they've built a good enough relationship with you and learned a bit about you, they're going to start recommending different things that you might find valuable and useful. So if they find out that you're from a different city or out of town, and they might ask you, have you seen the Eiffel Tower? And if you haven't, they might say, well, that's something you should really go to. And while you're there, there's an amazing restaurant just around the corner. Or they might say, do you have any plans for dinner tonight? Because we have an amazing chef that's in at the hotel and I can get you two seats at the table at 8 p.m. 
you just think they're doing that out of the kindness of their heart. They're not ready. They're in a sales role and their mindset is different. Okay, they're not aggressive. They're not pushing you to anything different. What they are doing, though, is they are ensuring that you go through the full sales cycle of that hotel. It's similar now to PLG, where an example might be when you sign up to a PLG app, specifically as a business, it might ask you a couple of questions just to understand your needs. How many people are in your company? What is the use cases that you're interested in? All these sorts of questions. And that's really a great way for these concierge-like sales assistants to utilize that to engage with you. And there'll be certain markers that let's assume company size is one of the obvious ones where you've indicated that you're of a certain size that's worth the time and effort to try and upsell you or to hold your hand and white glove you through the solution. And so their approach in that motion is ready to come reach out to the user at that point or to get them to become a user and try and engage them in a conversation about their needs and how they might be able to benefit from your solution. Part of the challenge with free to use products is when people don't pay, they don't necessarily see value. And so once they have had a 10, 15 minute walkthrough of features and functionality and had somebody listen to them and make recommendations, it is much more likely that they're gonna skip a lot of those free steps and go straight to paying or that they're going to sign up and use it and build a bit of a relationship and leave a great review. So I think where that role really shines is in identifying that, let's say, higher tier user or potential user and white gloving them through the product. So that's, I would say, the first group. It's like the product's not quite there to give you that white glove effect on its own, so you need someone to hold their hands. The second group is where they've got a lot of volume. They've got people coming through, but what they keep having the problem of is they have a net, okay, that's catching all the fish that come through, and many of them are, let's say, anchovies and tuna fish, but every once in a while, a whale comes through, and they don't notice it. And that's, again, where those companies step in and say, whoa, a huge company just signed up for a free plan, but they've got one person using it, but there's actually potential thousand people in the company that could use our solution go talk to that person and those companies have a different playbook about how they want to do it and approach it but that's really the second kind of group that look to insert these you know sales assistants into their mix i love the analogies that you've just mentioned here i'm, I'm just trying to keep that as bullet points and maybe a small list of things that this new team or new role might want to do so i think you, you mentioned about PL sales assist team, they need to be very well acquainted with the users and they're part of the customer journey. They're not necessarily sales, but the term that you've been using frequently is concierge. They are essentially champions with the assumption that, hey, these guys are starting to love the product or they're already using the product, just make them use better. So maybe upsell indicators, cross-sell indicators are, are something that they might be even incentivized to. The second part of the job description that you mentioned is wherever they get stuck, right? Find and identify where they're getting stuck. Again, this is more like the product usage data. They look at the data for that particular account and find out who's from that particular company who's using the product, where are they getting stuck? Why are they not being able to use other features within the product that have a higher TCV to the company as well? So they are able to go and help them 
get unstuck, right? So that's the, maybe the second part of the job description. I think the third part of the job description is identify the whales. Who are the big whales here who we can upsell to a larger amount and then essentially skip the entire product-led journey, get them to directly into the sales-led journey if we can to, right? Um, meaning we start off in the product-led, but being able to go in a higher ACV with, because it's a large customer and they have potentially large problem to solve. I think maybe those are the three good indicators, but here's a subsequent set of questions that come because of that. The first one is, this is a new role and these are new skill sets. Using product data, identifying customer usage issues, unblocking them, all of these are new. Typically, they were part and parcel of the CSM worlds before. The CSMs used to do the onboarding, CSMs used to have conversations with the customers. And now what David, you're suggesting is there's a role that alongside with the CSM, is looking at the product usage data to unblock, to find the whales and become a concierge there. Now, let's assume for a moment that this team needs to be there. Who do they report to? And how do they compete? What is their portion that they should be doing versus the CSM team should be doing, if that team should exist as well? So maybe could you touch upon that? Yes, yeah, so I would say I would split who they report to depending on where they're being used. I would say that until a customer is spending money, let's say there's the first flow, which is solve the usage problem. In that regard, I would say they report into the marketing team. Okay. This is my thoughts. Okay. I would say that okay. the reasons being is that the marketing team are driving people to the, the free product, but if they're not actually adopting it, if they're not engaging, if they're not signing up and doing that first activation, then marketing hasn't actually achieved its goals. So many teams that are stuck there need someone to do it. And the current strategy, which is just to email them and notify them to death, is mm -hmm. not going to work. People ignore emails. They, I, I, don't even, I don't know what your inbox looks like, but mine has an updates folder that's just filled with all these updates and yeah. notifications from all sorts of SaaS products that I ignore. So sending more is not going to help. So you actually need somebody to come in and solve that problem. So I would say if that's your problem, that's who they report to. Then they're signing up, but they're signing up at a very low rate. So either we're getting big companies sign up for $10 a month when they should be spending 10 times, 100 times more, or we're getting companies go through the funnel, use it, and then just not make that next payment step. So I would loop them in there too. And I would say in that regards, they go to sales. Where CS is involved, personally, I would only consider customer success for a certain tier of clients that is spending more than a certain amount. And then mm -hmm. you can justify adding on that extra cost to keep them and potentially expand them. So I would add them into that category where you're taking an existing customer, you're spending enough to make an impact, and you want to keep them happy. You want to lock them into a longer term contract. You want to expand the current account. Then the layer that traditional SDRs could add value onto that in this, let's say, sales assist role would be to look at either lookalike potential clients and bring them into the ecosystem. In this case, I would put them under sales. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Or to say, let's say, for example, you're working with uh, Sony. Okay, but you're working with uh, some of their U.S. office, but Sony's offices all over the world. But only the U.S. office is using your 
PLG. So customer success is there. They're growing that team. They're building a relationship. But the SDRs are going to be reaching out to all the other offices around the world and saying, hey, the US team are using the solution cross-sell exactly i feel like they're more equipped to go out cold it's not warm from an intro it's still cold they know how to do that and that's where i would use them i would have them report into sales though not into customer success just because the mindset is a selling mindset it's not a customer success mindset that's a lot to digest right so i think for the listeners maybe here's a question that you should be asking if the strategy of your company especially if you're a SaaS company is to go product-led first then I think what David describes is the role that exists between product and sales. But if it is sales-led first, then it is sales and marketing. But if you are doing both, then somehow you have to go tie that up with the CSM as well, right? Because ultimately, onboarding, retention, and all of that is done by the CSMs, right? But in the case of a PLG onboarding, maybe the product-led sales assist is the one who's unblocking even in onboarding and activation. So there's a lot to think about. And maybe, if David, do you have any links or documents for anyone to yeah. understand how to do this as they scale up from, let's say, a small startup to a large startup? Absolutely. We've worked with lots of different companies to solve these challenges and help them map it out. I would say you have to think about it unique to your business and not just make a blanket rule like, oh, we're in this stage, let's do this. So, yes, absolutely happy to be a resource and, and share some of that. Uh, absolutely. If you have some blogs or some articles that you have alongside with how does anyone reach out to your company? We can add that in as part of the show notes as well. I know, David, we are out of time on the recording part of it, but maybe let's close it on a lighter note. Could you maybe share any significant fails, meaning something that companies have tried and have not worked out, and you they have brought you in at that time to go fix that problem? Could you maybe share some light on any failures that you've seen in this particular whole journey of SLG layering PLG or PLG and layering SLG and where they go wrong? Yeah, so one that always comes to mind is a company that had a massive adoption problem. So their whole model is purely usage-based, okay? But people weren't using it. And they decided to build a community around from interested users around the problem that their product solved. And so they did. And the community was super successful. It has thousands of members and people are engaged. The only problem with this community is the entire community is anonymous. So mm -hmm. they have absolutely no way of weaponizing that community more than just sending them alerts or, hey, try this out or what have you. They don't actually know who's in their community. When they brought us in, when they explained it, before they told me about the anonymous part, my first thinking was, this is great. You have a captive audience of 4,000 mm -hmm. people interested in this problem, sharing notes, talking about it every day. Oh, and they were using the free version of their product. Let's just contact the highest free version users and book them in. And they said, here's the problem. We actually have no way of contacting them. So <laughs> I think they're the victims of their own success in some regards. I think a lot of product-led founders are so good at building wonderful products that they don't think about the sales element of it. This product is built to make money, right? It's supposed to make lots of money, lots of profit, grow very fast. So the moves that you need to make have to be 
somewhat linked to a commercial interest. I'm sure that you, these 4,000 people love being a part of that group, right, and get a lot of value out of it, but they pay $0 for that, and it doesn't help the companies. I would say that's one lesson that just comes to mind is whatever marketing activity you're coming up with or whatever product you're building to engage your audience, make sure that there is a commercial pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Otherwise, you'll get a lot of thumbs up on social media, but not a lot of uh, money in the bank account, which ultimately is why you're building a company. That's a great lesson. Build a product so you can commercially sell so that you can stay afloat and be valued to a lot of other customers as well. That's great insight, David. David, it was great talking to you. A lot of nice riffing around product-led and sales-led and everything in between. David, again, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Appreciate it. And to the audience, to our listeners, let us know how do you like this particular podcast. If you have any other thoughts, any other topics that you'd like us to consider, please do suggest us. 